You can take your Bible now, and if you're in Psalms, uh, just turn back uh, to Job 1. And I've got one little loose end to tie up from last week before we jump into chapter 2. We're at the dinner, uh, the, uh, the lunch after church Sunday, and uh, Penny Rep came up, and uh, they're, they're not here today. I believe they're uh, out of town visiting uh, family today. But um, she had a wonderful question, and I want to share it with you. And the observation she made was very, very, very astute, and I think it's worth repeating. Um, sorry she's not here to <laughs> give her credit for that, but uh, maybe she'll hear it on the tape. Um, look, back, look down at the end of Job chapter 1 to Job's response. Job chapter 1, verse 21. Did I say 21? Chapter 21? Chapter 1. Verse 21, Job's response, uh, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then verse 22, Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And Penny's question was this, Actually, it was more of a statement, and then it turned into a question. She said, those two verses contradict each other. Can you look there and see how you might read those in a contradictory fashion? Because she's right, and I think a lot of people a lot of, a lot of people would respond this way. Verse 21, who does Job ascribe responsibility to over the events of what happened? God. You see that? Okay. Look at verse 22. Or, yeah, 22. But he did not do what? He didn't blame him. And, and here's what Penny said. It was so good. She said, so, so he was seeing God being responsible for this, but not in a way that ascribed blame to him, wrongdoing. Do you see that? I thought that was such a great observation because I think, I think a lot of Christians in holding God responsible for things, they don't have another category other than blaming him, especially when those things are bad things. Do you see that? And, and part of what we're supposed to understand from this is Job is saying God is responsible. He is sovereign. He is the one at work in this. And it's not a bad intent behind it. He's not blaming him. He's not, and it's kind of weird how it gets translated. I know some of your Bibles are going to translate it differently, verse 22. But it's literally, um, he did not ascribe fault to him or charge him with wrongdoing. Um, He's not blaming him. He's, he's, not, he's not saying, God, you did the wrong thing. He's saying, yes, Lord, you're responsible, but that comes out of a heart that is trusting in his goodness and in his grace and in his kindness even in the midst of that. Does that make sense? I, th- I think that's such a huge... We, we need to create that category. We, we need to create a category in our head that says we can see God as being sovereign and responsible and in control and providential, but not in a way that we would blame him for the evil and sin in the world? Does that make sense? In a way that we can trust him and say, Lord, your intent is good here. 
and I trust you. So, good job, Penny Rep, uh, Bible scholar uh, of the day there, okay? And then there's one other thing. Um, I don't, I don't in, in thinking back over last Sunday, I didn't feel like I developed this very well. One of the things that we're supposed to see in Job, uh, and it, goes, it comes right out of this text here, is that the perspective is the, the, the depth of our pain or suffering and loss is a reminder of the, death, or of the proportion and depth of the grace that we received in whatever that was that God gave us. For example, the, the depth of sorrow that Job felt in losing his whole family and losing all his possessions, and losing his servants, losing his livelihood. It would be comparable in in today's culture of totally losing all of your retirement savings, all of your assets, uh, along with all of your family. And part of what is driving Job's response of very, very powerful worship at the end of that is that Job was able to see that the depth of his sorrow in losing those things reminded him just how much grace God had given him. And uh, let me read you uh, our friend William Green on this. It won't be the last time I pull out Mr. Green. He says, The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Listen to this. The bitterness of his loss is made the measure of the preciousness of the blessings God had given. The severity of his trial consists in parting with what God has bestowed. Every pang that now rends his heart is a fresh proof how gracious God has been. The magnitude of the loss determines the value of the gift, and the depth of his anguish enhances his grateful sense of the goodness of the giver. Follow this, listen. The more deeply he mourns the treasures which have been taken away from him, the higher is his appreciation of the gracious kindness of him who bestowed them. What planet is he from? Do you see that? So the depth of our sorrow should drive a proportionate appreciation for how much grace God has given us in that. I'm sorry? He's not upset in a sinful way. Um, absolutely. Absolutely, I agree with you. Uh, we know because of what he does in verse 20. We didn't read it, but we'll just look at it again. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. That reminds us that he was not just being stoic about it. He was in terrible grief. That, that would have been a picture of um, depth and sorrow and grief in that culture. But you're right. In, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his sorrow, he wasn't sinning against God in his response. So that's a very good observation. Um, and, and as is so often the case in narrative, we, we're going to see this this morning with Job's wife. Um, does Job's wife say, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Or does she say, How can you 
still hold to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and end this thing? Is there a little bit different in the intention there, right? Narrative is so hard to interpret because we don't have anything other than the text itself. But one of the things that helps us, and it helps us to understand Job's response, is reading the whole context. And that really helps us to make sure that we're not pulling, as I mentioned, the praise song does, pulling verses 21, verse 21 out of the context and turning it into something that it really was not reflecting in the original there. So, Okay, a couple of loose ends tied up. Look at Job chapter 2, verse 1. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. This is round two. Uh, There are three stages of Job's suffering. Stage one, he loses his family, his possessions, his animals, his servants, uh, basically his, his livelihood and his family. That's stage one. This is stage two where he loses his health. And then stage three is after the issue with his wife when the friends come in. That's stage three. Three progressions of his uh, suffering here. We see Satan's second challenge in these verses. This section is virtually virtually identical to the first round in chapter 1. Verse 3 says, Now the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. Again, identical to chapter 1. Now this part is different. Look at the the end of uh, verse 3 there. And he still holds fast his integrity... Although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Isn't that interesting? God once again draws Satan's attention to Job and says, Look, he's still doing the right thing. He's still trusting me. He's still worshiping me. He's still honoring me. He still holds fast his integrity. And this is the part that kind of rubs people the wrong way sometimes. It says, Though you incited me against him. And we say, to what degree can Satan incite God? Right? And we've got to be a little bit careful here. Uh, what it basically means is he urged God or he spurred on God to uh, attack Job without cause. Um, I couldn't find this in a commentary, so please don't, don't put a lot of stock in it. I think a little bit of what God is doing here, well, back up a second. What what these two chapters are about are thwarting Satan, okay? This is about God's plan to show Satan to be a liar, to be wrong, to be completely backward in his assessment of God's character and why people worship. God is going to take Job... And using him, show how absolutely wrong Satan's perspective is. He's going to demean Satan. He's going to put him under his feet, so to speak. That's what this is all about. And with that context, I think as we read this verse, I think that there's a little bit of God actually mocking Satan in this discourse. Though you incited me to, to blame, to, to attack him without cause. 
I think God is, is taking this opportunity to show Satan how wrong he is in saying that. Um, so he's, he's urged him on, he's spurred him on. And notice here it says to ruin him without cause. It's a very graphic term. It, it means to swallow him up, to, to totally overwhelm him in the midst of his grief and pain, to destroy him. And then probably the most interesting part about this section, look at what it says there. It says uh, to destroy him, ruin him, the end of verse 3, without cause. Do you see that there? That is the same word that Satan threw in Job's face at the beginning. Job, does Job serve you for nothing? Without a cause? And so God takes that, having thwarted Satan in round one, and kind of rubs his nose in it a little bit. You incited me to ruin him. Without cause. Verse 4, And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Um, probably what these two statements are are some common proverbs of the day. Uh, and basically what it means is, a person will abandon anything he owns, including his prized possessions and loved ones, to protect his own life. That's the proverb. That's what the proverb is saying. Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give in exchange for his life. So what, what's Satan doing here? What's he doing? Same thing we said before where he's kept challenging God that Okay, that's right. And, and so what, what is Satan doing with how round one went? He's not ignoring it. You're close. He's not ignoring it. He's, he's explaining it away, isn't he? It's not that big of a deal. No, wait a minute. No, no, no. That, that was no big deal, even though it was his idea. He's saying, no, 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 that, that didn't count. Um, you know, maybe you've, you've played a basketball match or a, something like that, and, and you lose. And Okay, now we're going to do two out of three, right? That's kind of what Satan's doing here. Verse 5, however... Put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. That's a, that's a Hebrew way of saying his whole body. And he will curse you to your face. He will surely curse you to your face. Again, it's emphatic. He's going to curse you if you just take away his health. And amazingly, verse 6, the Lord says to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Literally, he says, you must keep his life. Isn't it? God commands Satan. You can't kill him. You have to keep his life. But he's in your power. Verse 7, so Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord, and he smote Job with sore boils, literally evil boils, bad boils, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Uh we have no idea what sort of disease this was. In fact, several of the commentaries I read, they talked to medical doctors. I'm sure if Doc Martin was here, he could give us a dozen different potential diagnoses based on symptomology. Um, obviously, the, uh, the language in very, very old, ancient, Near Eastern uh, texts, um, nowhere near as scientifically, scientifically uh, accurate in the sense of helpful. I'm not, not saying it's inaccurate, just that it's not specific enough to make a conclusive diagnosis. But 
if if we just wander through the book of Job, we get an idea of what his situation was like. Because I don't know about you, but I, probably the first time I read this was as a kid, and I'm thinking, no, this is like chicken pox. You know, you got stuff all over your body, and you itch all the time. Okay, and that's kind of what comes to my mind. But li- listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 8 says he has severe itching all over his body. Chapter 7, verse 5 said... He had scabs that were forming over the boils. His skin was broken and festering, and it was infected with worms. Chapter 30, verse 30, his skin over time turned black and began to peel. He had fever. He had burning in his body. Chapter 2, verse 12 And chapter 19, verses 19 and 20, his appearance was so repulsive when his friends showed up. Do you remember what the text says later on in chapter 2? They didn't recognize him. You ever ever walked into a hospital where maybe somebody has been in a car accident? And it's so bad. And they've got so much stuff that they're hooked up to, tubes and, and ventilators and IVs and machines. And your first reaction is, I don't even know who this person is. Whatever the nature of this disease was such that it changed his appearance. It disfigured him. Chapter 19, verses 13 and 14 tell us that everybody stayed far away because they probably thought he was contagious. He was alone. Chapter 16, verse 16, his eyes had swollen from all of his weeping. Chapter 30, he had digestive problems, probably diarrhea. Chapter 7, verse 4, and verses 13 and 14, he was sleepless. He couldn't sleep, and that led to delirium. Chapter 7, verse 15, he had trouble choking. Chapter 19, verse 17, he had very bad breath. Chapter 19, verse 20, Uh, he experienced something called emaciation, which is where your body loses fat and muscle tissue so much that a person looks like skin and bones. And chapter 30, verse 17 said he was in constant excruciating pain throughout his body. Okay, this isn't chicken pox. Look at verse 8. And he, the only thing he could do, the only thing he could do to bring some relief, and you guys understand, the culture we live in today with medical technology, with medicines, with treatments, with technology, obviously light years away from what was available today, in Job's day. What was available in Job's day was basically nothing. Or things which people thought would do things which usually ended up doing nothing or making things worse. The only thing he could do, look at verse 8, he took a potsherd, a piece of broken pottery, and he engaged in what one commentator called self-laceration, scraping himself to the point where the boils would bleed, probably part of the reason that they became infected. Now, what? 
why would you cause pain to your body? Why would you scrape yourself till you bled? The answer is because it brought a little bit of relief from the itching. The itching was so bad, the situation was so bad, that even experiencing self-inflicted pain gave temporary relief. If you've ever met somebody who cuts, very common in teenage girls today, to cut themselves with razor blades or uh, knives or, or sharp objects, things like that, um, it's part of the same psychology as what's going on here. It brings relief from other pain even though it ends up hurting you in the process. And notice, where is Job? My picture of Job totally changed this week as I did some more reading on this. Where is he in verse 8? Where? Sitting among the ashes. Where's that? Outside the city where? The local dump. Where people would take their oven ashes, their trash their waste outside of the city. If you were a Jew, obviously that would be an unclean place to go. That's where Job found himself, sitting in the dump with the ashes, with the broken pottery, with the human waste, and all that goes with all that by himself, scraping himself with broken pottery to bring some sort of relief. He was outside the city. This was known in this day as the abode of outcasts. He suffered in isolation away from community life. Then something happens. Probably the one person who wasn't afraid to visit him shows up, his wife. Before we jump into the next verse, I want you to think about a few things. Job's wife experienced everything that Job experienced up until this point, didn't she? She sat there with her husband over those fresh graves, burying their children. She sat there as the servants came in one after one saying, you've lost everything. She sat there knowing that she would never see her kids again, that whatever plans they had for the future were gone. They probably were even wondering, how do we put food on the table? Remember, the crops burned up, right? There's no food. And now, the one thing that she did have, which was her husband, uh, appeared to be being taken away from her. And I think um, keeping that in mind will help us to think rightly about Job's wife. Let's catch up here a little bit. Did you get those? What do we know 
What do we know about Job's wife? You okay on that? You good? We know nothing about her other than what we learn in this verse. Okay, and by what we can sort of infer about her from the rest of the text, but nothing directly other than this verse. She has experienced the same suffering as Job up until now. Right? All their property, all their animals, all their servants, all their livelihood. You know, I've talked to some people that have had to bury children. I don't know that I've ever talked to parents that have had to bury ten children. Uh, It's one of those things that you're not ever supposed to have to do. Now, in her own grief, her own grief is interrupted by her husband's sudden disease. She can no longer grieve with him anymore. You ever been in a situation like that? She can't grieve with him anymore. Now now she's grieving for him. And maybe if, if you get the geography and the picture in your head right, she's probably not with him most of the time now. He's out in the city at the ashy. He's outside the walls. She's alone. She could at least before lean on her husband and call uh, to him in the midst of things. But now her grief is multiplied by grief over him. She's alone in her grief. She knows her life is over. Think about this. She has no children. She has no servants. She has no animals. She has no fields anymore, no livelihood. Now her husband is likely going to die. What does that mean for her in this culture? She just goes down and gets on welfare, right? No problem. The Social Security Security check will start any day, right? What's going to happen to her? Slavery? That's one option. She could go sell herself on the slave market. She could become a prostitute or worse. Do you understand how bad this was for her? Uh, That's a good question. Not that we know about. Not that we know about. And she responds. She can't take it anymore. It's so difficult day after day to see his condition worsen. The infections get worse. The disease gets worse. She sees no relief. There's nothing she can do to help him. And she cracks. This is interesting. Job's wife saw God as the source of his suffering, but in the wrong way. And I'd like to suggest to you, before we get into her response, just a a theological framework for thinking about this, okay? We interpret the providence of God in the events of life through the lens of our own understanding of his character. Um, 
Okay, here we are, and we're viewing life events. How we interpret those life events, we read through the lens of, we call it theology, but more specifically, God's character. That's very important to see. We, we don't just react. We don't just, you know, respond to life in any old way. We respond. We interpret life very particularly. And we interpret what happens in life on the basis of what our real working theology is in our heart. And as Job's wife is processing all of this, and as she says what she says, it reveals something very important about where she's at in her heart. We could say it like this. Our reactions to the events of life reveal our true assessment of God's character. Here we are again, right? Right back in that place. We call this the revelatory nature of suffering. Suffering is revelatory. It reveals things about us. And it's the things that it reveals about us which are part of how God uses suffering redemptively. What God is doing in this woman's life right now is showing her something about herself so that she can turn to her Lord, so that she can grow. Part of the the struggles in Job involve a heart-wrenching tension between our Sunday school theology and our life experience. You know what I mean? What, what do you do when your life seems to be contradicting your doctrine? What do you do when the way life goes seems to say that your theology is wrong? You ever feel that tension? There are people in Scripture that felt that tension. You ever read the Psalms? Lord, I thought you were my refuge. Why are these people trying to kill me? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. But anyway, my point is, um, the, the way they viewed their blindness was interesting. Um, that they must have done something in a previous life that caused God sure. to help, yeah. you know, And then their families would just disown them because mm-hmm. well, they were a disgrace. Right. It's interesting. It was just, yeah. Yeah. we're very It's that Buddhist culture out there, yeah. Okay. So let's look at her response. After all this, she cracks. She, she views the events of what's going on as God's injustice. And she mocks Job's character and testimony. She says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Why are you still doing this? Curse God, she says, and die. Now, you need to understand, when she said that in this culture, it was assumed that if Job did that, he would probably fall dead right in there by God's judgment. So what's she actually encouraging him to do? Commit suicide. Divinely initiated, or or divinely carried through, but suicide. It's like suicide by cop. Yeah. Yeah. And here's what I want you to see. 
It's her only answer. She didn't have any other answer. She's sitting there watching him suffer. She's sitting there trying to be with him, help him, do anything she can. Her only answer is, Job, end your suffering. I can't watch this anymore. You ever met somebody in that place? Where their only answer is to end it? That's, that's an ancient form of it, yeah, if you want to think about it like that. Look at this. Let's look at her response. She, she questions his integrity. We don't know if she was mocking him, she was being blatant, angry, or if she was just saying, Job, let it go. Let it go. But she questions his integrity. She commands him to curse God and die. She gives two imperatives. This, these aren't suggestions. These aren't, Job, you need to think about This is, Job, you need to do this right now and end this deal. And she, in the process, unknowingly becomes Satan's accomplice. Does that... Does that shock you? That his beloved wife can actually become, become Satan's accomplice in this? As I, as I reflected on that, I thought, how many times have I said foolish things and unknowingly helped Satan? We need to be very, very, very careful when we minister to people that are suffering. We need to make sure um, that our lips, our counsel, are things that are going to promote God's agenda, not Satan's. I think, what a tragedy. And, and th- this is another sermon for another day, but do you see what suffering does to a marriage? Do you see that attack here? To where the beloved wife, the beloved husband, supposed to be one flesh, she's now his accomplice, Satan's accomplice. So this is is not just about physical suffering. This is about attacking the most important earthly relationship most of us will ever have. Watch this. I want you to examine Job's response with me. You know, when I initially read this, I thought, well, this, this is great. This, this is all about how you rebuke your wife when she's sinning, right? Um, that's not what this is about. This is about a man of God who in the midst of suffering that we can only imagine, shepherded his wife, encouraged his wife. He's on the ash heap, bleeding to death. And this is what he says. 
You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Look at this. He rebukes her, but he does it real nice. It would have been so easy for him to say, you're acting like a fool. But he doesn't. Notice how he words it. He says, honey, I'm sure he said that. (laughs) You're speaking like one of those foolish ladies over there. And and, and the, the intonation is, that's out of character. That's not like you. Um, There's a cool little thing you can do in Hebrew by rearranging the structure to bring emphasis. And he does something. It's brilliant. And I I wish we could do stuff like this in English because it would make gentle rebukes a lot easier. But we can't. He puts his wife, you, parallel to the foolish women. He sets it up. It's a chiastic structure. The center element is the focus of the poetry, and it parallels his wife with the foolish woman. So it's like he's, he's saying, you're acting like this without calling her foolish. He's being a godly husband. Notice this. He doesn't get angry. Um... <laughs> Guys, can we just admit, if we were having the worst day of our life and our wife said something to us like this, that probably wouldn't be our reaction. He doesn't call her a fool, but it compares her speech to that of the foolish women. He says, this is out of character. Secondly, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't take it personally. He doesn't yell. Yet he's in, he's in terrible agony. Even in his suffering, he honors God. That, that's profound, man. I mean, that, d- does that show you something about this guy's heart? That show you something about where his treasure is? About how big his God is? Number three, interesting. He's going to challenge her heart by challenging her theology. Look at what he says. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept Adversity Again, he does something in the language. He's bringing emphasis. He's bringing emphasis to good things and adversity. Okay, that's the focus. And he says, he's going to challenge her response, right? He's going to challenge how she's responding, but he's going to do it by challenging her theology. Should we only accept the things from our God that we like? Should we only praise Him when life is good? When we're getting the blessings that we want? But when He brings something different our way, we say, oh, no, 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 and we want to curse God? What kind of faith is that? That's, you ready? Satanic theology. That's exactly what Satan told God in the first chapter, isn't it? God 
Job is only blessing you. He's only worshiping you. He's only this great man of integrity because you've made his life so great. Take it away. He'll curse you. Wasn't that the challenge? And do you see how his wife is saying the exact same thing in a different way? Number four, he puts the challenge in the form of a question. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the guy that is the executive director of NANC, a guy named Randy Patton, actually he's Terry's uh, counseling supervisor right now, Never, he said this years ago. It's stuck in my head. It's just profound. Here's what he said. An accusation hardens the will. A question pricks the conscience. Right? And rather than attack her, rather than accuse her, rather than even being indicative and saying, you do this, he says, dear, shall we accept good things from God and not accept the bad things? Is that the type of God we serve? Is that the type of faith we have? And do you see... Uh, you know what? Godliness seems foolish to people that can't see spiritually. Doesn't it? Job's response seems absolutely foolish because his wife can't see right now. She's not where she needs to be, and she can't see spiritually what's going on. She can't see God accurately. She can't see what he's doing accurately. And people that can't see, they see people obey. They see people godly responses. They see people trust God in the midst of hardship. And they think that's the craziest thing in the world. It's foolish. Number five. His response defends God from any injustice. That's getting at the heart of this. And it's setting the stage for the rest of the book. Because where's Job going to ultimately crack? He's going to say to God, God, I want to take you to court so you can plead your case because I think you're not getting this right. That's what he's going to say. And injustice is going to be the thing that nails him. But right here, he sees it. Right here, he sees it. There's no injustice here. This is a good God. This is a kind God. This is a God we trust. And we can't... No, notice this too. Um, I was sharing this with somebody this week. Job's hope is not that God gives him an answer and says, oh, here's what I'm doing. Job's hope is not someday God's going to explain this to me. In fact, you ready for this? When, when Job finally challenges God later in the book, God never answers his question. Why is that? Because part of what this book is about is that our hope, our, our ability to be okay in the midst of suffering is not in having all our questions answered. It's in knowing the God whom we serve and trusting Him. He says, sweetheart, God's not doing anything wrong. We trust Him. 
And notice this, his answer puts the creature in submission to the Creator. Job's wife committed the same sin that Eve committed. She stood up, looked down on God, and pretended like she was God's judge. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. I'm going to decide whether God is doing the right thing or not doing the right thing. It's the same thing Romans 1 says happens to all of us because of sin. We, we replace the, cre- the Creator with the creature, and then we become the one to evaluate God's character. Do you see that? And his response says, no, we're not God's judge. We're not in the place of God to be able to, to judge his character, to judge what he's doing, why he's doing it. His wife reverses the roles. She was standing in judgment of God. And then finally, he didn't allow her sinful words to lead him to sin. That's absolutely amazing. He didn't allow... Well, let's just think of all this. Let's start with this, her lack of compassion. I mean, good night. You, you hear what this guy's going through? And she's making it about her? Her bad advice, her hopelessness, her anger, her resentment, perhaps even her mocking tone. She's probably the only counselor he has at this point. And look at the counsel she's giving. What what drives a man to be able to respond like this? And the answer is, and we'll talk more about it next time, but the answer is this. He has a very, very, very big view of his God. And corresponding to that big view of God is a heart that is clinging to him in the midst of his world falling apart. Um, You know, we need not be too hard on Job's wife because sometimes, sometimes it's harder to watch somebody who's suffering than it is to go through it, isn't it? You ever been there? But I think we also need to see how susceptible we are in those situations to end up being opposed to God rather than being part of His redemptive plan in the life of that person who's suffering. And we should all want to be part of what God is doing in the lives of people that are suffering. So I don't know about you, but... I want to have a view of God and a trust of God like this. Don't you?